HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Forging relationships shouldn't be a punch list on your career, or should it? If you're doing your job well, treating people well, training and learning along the way, then naturally you're going to be good at relationship building. But what about in the dining room? Often the path to your next venture can be sitting out in the dining room enjoying your food and praising the experience. But it's the relationships that people form that can earn someone's trust. Understanding your passion as well as your vision are necessary complements to a well-executed meal. Our guest today is Chef Sean Hergat, a Michelin-starred chef known for his refined and technical approach. Sean garnered accolades at his former NYC fine dining temples, show Sean Hergat and Judy. And Sean's latest venture is a vegetable and seafood forward concept in Soho called Vestry. And it just opened about a month ago, I guess like five weeks if we're being technical on October 2nd. So first off, congrats, chef, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How do you feel one month in? Tell you us know, about the project. I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm relaxed, but I'm a little bit more relaxed considering that we've had a really great response from our clients and they seem to love what they're eating and, and they like the service and the design. So it's, uh, it's great. Thank you. Was this Amazing. opening any different than other openings you've experienced? <laughs> uh, internally, it was actually very smooth. Um, I think the current uh, climate, as far as, you know, what's happening out in the world, it was definitely um, a little bit worrisome. But, you know, being a positive human being, I, I always look for the, the golden lining. So I think that uh, 
you know, this is not the short game. This is, is much more about the long-term uh, plan and goal. So, you know, we're very positive about what we're doing. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, so this is obviously, it's not, you know, restaurant projects obviously hopefully aren't short-term. Um, people want them to be around for a long time. So have did you guys change the business model at all leading up to this, given the current climate? Or are, have you modified? Tell us how, how that's all come about. Well, it's actually... Moreover, I wouldn't say that we changed the entirety of what we were, what our goal was. This was always meant to be a, um, a neighborhood place that I wanted it to be Soho centric. And also, you know, a lot of New Yorkers, I, I really, I've lived here two decades now, so I want them to be um, able to actually enjoy the, the experience on a bi- bi-monthly basis or, you know, just a little bit more regularly than doing a fine dining experience. Uh, so, you know, as the design was closing and, then all of a sudden COVID hit, I realized that there was a year, you know, fast forward a year, then I realized that, you know, the, the plan could never have been what it was going to be at the start. So what we did was, uh, well, what I did was re- redesign the menu. So it was a little bit more um, easier approach. And I wanted to make sure the price point was definitely competitive. And then you start to, to also think about your location and, and about, you know, what else is being built around here. So all these different factors and all these different um, pieces of information you take as intelligence, you put them on the table and then you just try to make something that is, is really true to the value of what you are and make something very wholesome as far as, you know, from an eating perspective. And then just put the design together and, and make sure that the team really are well-educated and they care for the, 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 the guests. And, you know, we're really proud about being able to open in such a, difficult climate because we really want to give back to the restaurant community. Um, we've all suffered here for a long time, especially in restaurants and hotels. So from my perspective, it was really something that was uh, so great to be able to get the team together, get riled up, do the opening and give something really positive in such a crazy time. And I think that the pandemic has really affected all of us. And I feel that everyone that's come through the doors have have been very welcoming about having something fresh and new to be able to experience because it's one of those lifetime memories and, and those experiences that we we're going to keep. So we're very happy with Vestry. Amazing. So, and what drove the decision to make this more approachable departing from your, your previous experience of like fine dining? Was it just the, the neighborhood or did a little bit of the pandemic happen to play or this was always the plan and is there plans to maybe open more? Like that. Yeah, I, I've always wanted to do something more approachable. I think that I've, I've definitely been um, in a very different level of cooking and restaurants, but I don't think that the ability and also the inspiration and I've got a lot of concepts up my sleeve that I want to obviously introduce to the public and just let them enjoy it. You know, I always look at food as, as an experience. So if it's a burger and it's the best burger you've ever had, it's always going to be something that you cherish and if you do something that's going to be, you know, a little bit fun and it's a group setting. I mean, there's so many different aspects of our business and I've got so many ideas. I really want to try and just deliver so many interesting uh, concepts to, to not only New Yorkers, but when people travel again, I think that, you know, the homage is always fun and it doesn't necessarily have to be a tasting menu. And I'm a regular client within, you know, the, the boundaries of Manhattan and sometimes, you know, outside in the boroughs as well. And I, I, I like eating different levels of food, whether it's noodles on a Sunday or if I'm going to go for a, you know, a nice piece of fish in a fancy restaurant, 
I still appreciate all levels. And I think that, you know, when you have the excitement and you've had the experience and you really care about food and you care about clients and you care about making, um, these experiences, then, you know, you really want to try and do a lot of different things that offer people, um, great tasting stuff and, and those memories, you know? Yeah. And I'm curious now specifically with, you know, how things have changed. I feel like more people have gone more casual in service just because of everything with obviously the pandemic. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, you are opening something that is full service while it's approachable. It is still elevated. And I'm, I'm curious, have, so have guests been like flocking because they're so excited to sit down to like a plated meal again? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would be. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny because a lot of the clients are from previous, the previous fans, right? So the last two decades, they've, they've followed me and I've been very fortunate to have um, very dedicated uh, people who love the food. So a lot of them were like, is this going to be show? Is this going to be Junie? And, you know, I've been very blunt and very open and just just try the food. It's got, you know, it's about raw and refined. There's, there's really great raw ingredients and very refined technique in the cooking. It's the same as what we, you know, we really connected the design. I've got reclaimed wood on the floors, but there are some polished areas with the restaurant. So we really try to find that middle range and that niche where, you know, you can sit in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt or you can turn up in a jacket and you still feel comfortable. Um, and again, it's always driven by price point, right? It's like if you go out, for example, in New York City, anywhere between, say, 65 to to $100 is your zone because that's how much it costs to eat in the city if you go for a, a meal in most of the restaurants. Um, that's just the metrics on financials. So I think that we really wanted to spearhead this uh, so everyone can come down on a, like I said, a bi-monthly basis and just have a great time. And, you know, we want the neighborhood from Tribeca and West Village and, you know, Soho and, you know, all the different places that are really dedicated to this area to make it their home. Um, and I think that's very important, especially now because there's so many restaurant closings. And we, we just really want to make sure that we're, we're a place where people can celebrate, um, enjoy, uh, be recognized for, for being just good people and, and, and really have something that's, again, very wholesome and, and not too prissy and not too perfect. And we don't want to sit there and have that ceremony. Um, I've done that for many years, and I think the timing right now is just for people to have something very positive in their life. I was going to hit on the, the experience point that you mentioned, Sean. How do you curate and uh, curate the experience now in this time right now when people are very hands-off and um, obviously crowds are, are not a good thing? Um, how, do you, how do you make that experience happen at uh, Vestry? You know, it's interesting because you have very strong guidelines and, and pretty uh, direct protocols with from the CDC for how the restaurants are running. And, you know, obviously the inside, we're only at 25% capacity. So we actually built um, a really fantastic sidewalk dining experience. And we have 12 tables out there and we've beautified it with um, some landscaping and we've got these heaters and, you know, we've all the little lights and, you know, candles, and we've made it into an environment where, you know, a lot of the, the reviews that come through on Resi or any of the platforms that people get to actually give you their opinion, they've all, a lot of them have mentioned how, how much they love outside. And I think that's the way that we've really attacked this whole situation, saying, listen, if we can only have X amount of people on the inside, because they have to be distance minimum six feet apart, then we can still retain our covers and still obviously have a, a functioning restaurant. And that's why we put the 12 tables outside. 
um, I've got many of my friends who've come in and tried it and they actually love it. And it's, it's, it's refreshing to see how November has sort of panned out to give us a little bit better weather. And it's, it's really been quite successful, I must say. And, and I, I enjoy sitting out there because it's New York has only got really about four months worth of perfect weather. The rest of the time it's either, uh, really, really cold or it's raining. So, you know, you've got to take advantage of what you got and the plan that we put in place, it worked quite well. Yeah, for our listeners in other cities, we are blessed this year with 70 degree weather, which is like unheard of in November. I think like the weather gods are smiling on the restaurant tours this year or something. They're like, so these people a bone, they need all the help we can get. So it actually, you know, like our patio season has been tremendously extended. What, how do the economics work for you guys for like through the winter? Are you going to try to winterize? Are you going to try to just go with inside? No, we've got a plan. Um, you know, a lot of the places have been very, very, uh, a lot of the restaurants in the city have been extremely creative and uh, I have a plan in place, which I'm working on at the moment. Luckily, the weather's still holding up, so we'll be able to turn this in a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, again, we want to make sure that it is at the same quality and level of what the restaurant is. We, you know, obviously, if you're paying the same price, you expect the same service and, you know, you want a warm environment that's also safe to eat in. And that's our biggest priority is just to make sure that our clients are very comfortable with the understanding that we're protecting them, even though they're celebrating, we're still very much aware of uh, keeping them healthy. You know, that's such a, it's always been a, a big thing with me anyway. Like I run the kitchen and the restaurant like a surgery. You know, we always make sure that everything is perfectly put together because that's just who I am. I'm a little bit um, OCD in that way. Uh, so I think this is just, um, you know, reconfirmation for everyone to be smart about, you know, we have to be very careful with, with what we're doing when we're humans and, you know, washing hands and sanitizing and making sure that everything's pristine clean. That's always been our philosophy. I, I think that everyone's much more aware of it now. Um, so when we do build the outside and when we do all these other things to, to get through the winter, uh, it starts with health and safety and all that sort of stuff. And then we flow down to the experience and, you know, again, I, I believe that will be pretty successful because um, this gentleman I'm working with has been quite creative with some ideas so that you can have a good time with your little group. And, you know, I think it's going to be interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, everybody's been so creative and um, and just resilient in general. So, you know, I'm sure this winter will be just fine. Um, I'm curious how since you've you know changed from what you've been known for and you mentioned you know your your previous customers were asking is it going to be like show is it going to be like Junie how have you communicated to your guests um how are you like putting it out there that this is a more convivial and approachable and you know sort of a different side of chef Sean than they've seen before how are you like getting that out there to set people's expectations yeah I, I think everything's driven by you know what you present on the, the website you know, price point is a massive thing. Um, you know, when you can start out with small snacks for 12 bucks and, you know, your appetizers, you got a salad on the menu for 18 and, you know, the main courses, you can pick one up for 34 bucks. Like, it sounds like a lot of money if you're outside New York because restaurants, you know, different levels of refer- restaurants can run. But, you know, in New York, you have, you know, a lot of rent to pay and all these other things. So you have to get to a certain number. Now, normally I sell a fine dining experience anywhere between $250 to $500, right? So it's very, very expensive and it's a lifetime experience. And they may come in once, twice or three times 
within a two-year period and, and try what you do. Um, but I believe that price point, obviously, a lot of, from my perspective, a lot of visuals. Um, I use Instagram as a great platform to be able to promote, and obviously we have a fantastic PR team with the door. And the translation of, of information and making sure that people understand that this is approachable, it's done by simple messaging. And from my perspective, when you read the menu, there is nothing that is not unidentifiable. You know, there's steak on the menu, you've got salmon, chicken, and all these wonderful things that you eat on a regular basis. And I think that the one thing you're not going to find is caviar and truffles and all these high-level, expensive, um, opulent products. You know, I've really reached deep and looked at some of the best farmers and the best products that I can find. And I've had relationships with these people for 20 years now. And what we're doing is just putting the best product that we can find and really cooking it for what it is. And when people sit down and they they start to think about it, and I've had a couple say, well, this isn't Juni. And I'm like, that's okay. I said, did you dislike the food? And they're like, no, we love the food. It's just not what you were used to seeing you do. And, and you start talking to people and then they come to the realization that they have something that's really super quality and they can actually eat it regularly. Um, the issue with some restaurants it, and not all, you know, we're at a, a market that's hugely competitive, so they don't always buy the best. And you have to be very, very careful about what you consume these days and knowing the source and all of the stuff that people have preached for so long. You know, we actually act on that. And I think that that translation and the simplicity of the food and just being able to have a, like I said, a really great salad, you know, it's got carrots and avocado. There's beautiful greens from upstate, you know, it's done with the a mustard dressing and a little bit of uh, citrus oil. You know, these are very approachable items. And I think that, you know, what I've devised is a program where if I'm going out to eat, you know, once a week, there's things on the menu that I would eat every week. And that doesn't mean I always create experiences for what I like, but, I definitely have enough experience to know what New York is like. So, so I read in, um, I think there was like a, an article when the opening came in Women's Wear Daily that the project stemmed, you know, you've talked a lot about your guests and the repeats and um, what they expect from you. Um, and so that this project stemmed actually from relationships you've built over your career. So tell us a little bit about that and how it led to, to Vestry. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things that you just, you're always walking side by side with each other, but you may not see each other. And what I mean by that is I'll give an example like uh, Corinne, Sayori-san, she's the owner. She's a very wonderful person. And I've done quite a few concepts with her and used her plateware. And she goes all through Japan and she gets goes to the kilns and she gets the plates made. And they're very specific and they're very beautiful. But the one thing she also knows is that they have to be affordable. So... I'm able to create a, a, an experience with her from a plateware perspective. And I've known this lady since, I don't know, early 2000s or something. Um, she's been a regular client of mine. We've done promotions together. We've done food events together. You know, and, and what's interesting, it's just as you grow to know each other and you have that respect level, um, I get, you know, sneak peek at little like things that are coming on board that other chefs may not have and, that's what that's what the true value of, of working together for a long time is, is you understand that the, the type of person that you're dealing with. And I know she's a very articulate and she's a great businesswoman, but she also knows how to, you know, order things for me because she knows what I'm looking for. And it doesn't matter what price point I'm at. For example, if I'm 
doing vestry and I talk to her about the plateware and I say, you know, this is the direction that we're going and it's going to be an American restaurant, but there's going to be a few Japanese ingredients. A lot of local providers are going to be working with then we devise a plan and then she comes up with the catalogs and then she gives me the flow. And then I look at the price point, we measure all of the plates and then we go into this process to, um, to be able to form a, a new concept. So that relationship is a huge advantage for me be, to be able to detail what I need without having too much headache and too much time taken away because we understand each other. And that equates to every possible, you know, produce provider or, or somebody who makes it or windfall farms that I go to Union Square Market. I've been using the, these guys for like 15 years. And, you know, when they when you talk to the people, they know what you want. And I think that, you know, the trust level of where the sourcing is, is coming from is an essential part of what we do. Because again, the safety of our clients are the most important part of our life. It's the starting point of the experience. So I always talk to the crew about, you know, if you're eating something, you're putting it inside your body. And if it's not at the utmost quality, you know, obviously at the worst thing, you could make somebody sick, but at the same time, you know, we're eating not because it's just a, a function, but we're eating for our health and we're eating for our experiences and our taste buds and all these different dynamics that people go out and dine for, or, or even if they just eat on a regular basis. But the one thing that I do believe is, you know, these relationships give us the ability to give the best products so that people can stay healthy and, and they can just taste the best and I'll give you a very quick example. I have a bit of a problem with carrots in America. They just don't taste like a carrot. And I was lucky in January, I, I, I took my fiance back to Australia and we were sitting there and, and we just went to the, the regular supermarket and I grew up on a farm. So I, I'm pretty avid about, you know, dedicating my life to vegetables and we get this bowl of carrots and I just cook them very simply. And I gave one to her and then she ate it. She's like, oh my gosh, I've never tasted anything like this in my life. And it really comes down to the fact that, again, if you know where your sourcing is and you know what the product is, you can then get something so simple as a carrot and so regular and so basic. And it can be such an ethereal flavor profile that really blows your mind, but you have to know where to get it and what it should taste like. So it all reverts back to that initial question and that's relationships with, with people and knowing that you can get the best of the best. And, you know, the fortunate thing is I've, I've had the ability to be able to taste some really amazing stuff and that's set the standard for me. So, you know, I, I teach uh, a lot of the people who work for me and work with me about these, um, these flavor dynamics. And I think it's a pleasure to be able to introduce, especially the younger generation to these passionate farmers and people who produce these great products. And our philosophy is we always taste on a, on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, a vegetable or a piece of meat. We try to experiment as much as we can, so we're always tasting, you know, what greatness can really be. Where, Sean, where do the carrots at Vesti come from? <laughs> I'm intrigued. I know. Get them and... They come from California, man. Okay. And did you work with a farmer on developing uh, the flavor profile or whatnot that you have in Australia? No, we actually... I don't actually fly anything from Australia. I try to keep it as local as I can. Um, you know, we have a, a rolling list of, of suppliers. Um, and what that means is on a daily basis, we get a printout of all of the people that we're using. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example. We have a piece of Wagyu beef on the menu. Uh, and I wanted to introduce this piece of meat to the public at a very affordable price, right? Because normally Wagyu beef is very expensive. And unless you know what you're doing with it, it you eat a very small portion and, and, and it's very 
high level. But to me, there's so many different cuts of the animal. So, you know, Snake River Farms, you know, I've used these guys for 15 years, or a long time, over a decade. And the one thing we did is we got the Zabaton, and that's actually a cut that's inside the shoulder. So it's not a primary or a secondary cut. It's, it's more like a secondary to tertiary cut. So it's... It's very well marbled. It's a great piece of meat. The breeding program is fantastic. But the way that we're able to deliver it to our clients at an affordable price is by using that particular cut and selling it for a, you know, a, we still make a little bit of money on it, but it's not something that's going to cost you $200 for one piece of steak. And it's actually become the biggest seller on the menu. And it's not necessarily just because of the price or because of Snake River Farms. I honestly think because it's the, the type of cut it is. Not a lot of people get to experience what the Zabaton texture and flavor profile is. It's quite gamey. It has a very um, good texture to it. It's not too soft and it's not too firm. Um, and it's been an overwhelming response. And what's interesting is one of my favorite things to eat. And you can't go to the store and say, oh, could I get a Zabaton? The only place that I've actually seen it in New York City uh, where the public could access it is um, at Italy, at the little butchery there. I saw it there a couple of weeks ago. But if you try to get it on a normal basis, it's very, very difficult to be able to get this particular cut. Um, and these are the smart ways that we keep people inspired. And when we talk about the stories of our lives in the kitchen and, and the restaurant, especially with our clients, you know, we're very definite about explaining this to them so that they understand. And that, that small piece of education, if they have time to talk to us about that, especially the passionate foodies, um, it opens their eyes and it also gives them an understanding and, a, and, and, and a, a much better education about what we're doing in the restaurant. It's not just cooking a piece of beef and then throwing it on a plate and saying, all right, well, I hope you enjoy it and there's the money. We have these very strong stories, philosophies and ideals about what we're trying to do. And I think that it's all about quality. So some people say casual, fancy, fine dining, this, that and the other. I'm more look, I look at it more like price point and I look at it even if it's a burger, like I said before, and it's 12 bucks, I want to make the best burger that I can. And if I've got a salmon or if I've got a chicken and the chicken comes from upstate New York, we want to do the best that we can and really just make it, you know, amazing. And the story comes with that as well. And I think a lot of, especially New Yorkers, they're really interested about that, that philosophy part of, of the dining experience. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's true. It's, I think New Yorkers are really receptive to being like educated through their plate. But I also think there is, it's tough because it's like food is expensive and you know, what's affordable to some isn't to others, but people should be paying what things are worth considering where they've come from and all those things. So I think it's, it's really amazing to hear that you're able to communicate that to your guests and that you're using ingredients in such a um, interesting and, and responsible way. I think a lot of people don't understand that restaurants don't make huge margins. So the, the cost of food and labor um, to be able to run an entity that's cash positive, it's very difficult, especially when the rents are high and the food cost is growing and obviously the labor cost is growing. And unfortunately what happens is the price point doesn't grow um, that people pay because it's a very competitive market. So, you know, you can sit there and try and, and make more money, but then you're going to be, you know, you're not going to have as many clients because the comp your competition is so high. And I think, it, you know, it's interesting to see the metrics of, of restaurants, especially within New York and obviously America. I don't think a lot of people don't understand that they don't make, they don't make, you know, nobody's walking out of there, you know, flying private because they're owning a restaurant. Do you think that's going to change after, you know, people see so many things close or what do you think 
restaurateurs and chefs need to do in order to change that psyche? Ideally, I think that the the old method was it's the volume game, right? So the more covers that you do, then obviously the more money that you're going to make. Um, I believe, and this is just a personal belief, and this is, I, I believe that you should pay for for what you go for. And Americans eat out on a very regular basis. Unlike Australians, like I, I was never in a restaurant every week. It was a more of a special occasion thing. Um, you know, I like the, the philosophy in Europe that you do spend a little bit extra, um, but they also don't eat out as often. Um, I don't have the solution. And I think that a lot of restaurateurs, it's, you know, our, our success rate is probably less than 45%. So we really, we really have to be smart about what we're, our positioning is now and making sure that, you know, people are happy with the quality and bring consistency to the product because it's a fatiguing game and it's not an easy business. But at the same time, I, I, I've been in it for 20 years and I'm really, I back it 100% because it's my passion. Um, I just, I, I do believe that, you know, we should get back to a little bit more of a, not special occasion, but you should pay for your experience instead of having, you know, all these restaurants open and unfortunately they're not delivering very good quality, but you can get it very cheap. All that does is dilute your experience and it dilutes the quality of the product. And, you know, I think that, especially with me, because I like eating out, it's part of my life, it's part of my culture now as a human. Um, I'm very selective on where I go because I just don't want to consume food for the sake of eating it. I want to go to the you know, the, the places that I trust. I think, yeah, I, I think that people's, um, I think that people's mindsets could potentially change after the pandemic of how they view, you know, the importance and the experience of going out to eat and how they view. Um, I think they're seeing now what the experience of getting just a meal from a restaurant, right? Because most, a lot of, most restaurants are doing takeout only or, or some you know modified version of that. Um, so people are seeing basically what a restaurant provides without the experience. And so hopefully that they can, when this all kind of goes back, they'll see um, what the experience adds on to it, right? So once you sit down and you have the plateware and the silver and the service and the, the music and the vibe of the space that you're in, I think a lot of that should and could change. Um, and I agree with you, I think that, you know, I, I think that the price point is, is what it's all about. And um, I think that Americans have a long way to go in accepting a higher price point for the experience. We're too, we're too set on comparing your meal and your price points to what I can buy an avocado and a carrot for down at the local food emporium or whatever the hell it is, right? And that, those things just don't add up. So um, I, I think it'll change. I have optimism that it'll change for the better. And it certainly, I think, will when there's less restaurants and less competition around. Yeah, I also think, too, it's just Americans, you know, they love to eat out. And what the what everyone's realized, especially during this time where we haven't been able to go to a restaurant, is that it is part of our culture. You know, it is part of what we love to do. It's a, it's a, it's a place where you go to celebrate for a birthday or an anniversary or it's a, a place where you go to close a deal if you're a business person. It's also a place where you can really just uh, go and enjoy it with your friends. It doesn't even have to have a special occasion. And it's been taken away from us for a long time now, you know, seven months or six months that people haven't been able to go out. It's really, 
you know, you realize there's a big piece of you that are missing and, and those celebrations are gone. And I always have the philosophy that you only live one life. So you have to really celebrate it every day in, in, a, in a little way or a big way. And I think restaurants, are, you know, it's a big part, of, again, of our culture. I agree. Uh, on that note, let's take a little break. And then when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about hotels and hotel life as a restaurateur. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. All right, we're back and we're chatting with Sean Hergat, chef and owner of Vestry in Soho. Um, and we, uh, wanted to catch up a little bit. I think Jenny, you had the, the question about, um, how you spent a good amount of time in hotels. Is that, that's right. Uh, Sean, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Is that a decision? Is that, um, just as fate would have it? And what are some of the, the pluses and minuses of being a restaurateur in a hotel property? Yeah, you know, I, I've done freestanding restaurants. I've done hotel restaurants. I've opened up hotels um, on a corporate sort of thing when I was younger just to learn how to open them. Uh, I see, you know, I think that a restaurant really is a restaurant in my, my mind, that regardless of whether it's on the street um, and you have private investors or whether it's attached to a hotel, you're really creating experiences for people, right? And I see the distinct advantage on, if you have a hotel that's next to you and their occupancy is good and you're, you're promoting their product and they're promoting you, it's just a distinct advantage to be able to get people in those seats. How does that play now <laughs> when there is no people in hotels or there's a lot less people in hotels? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because, <laughs> I mean, obviously this is a lease space so we pay rent in the restaurant. There's obligations and, I, you know, having the hotel next to me with 400 rooms you know, we have, we, that was a big part of our budget, right? We put that in performers and uh, now that it's still closed and for obvious reasons, because there's no planes and when there's no planes, there's no travelers and there's no travelers, there's no hotel stays, right? Um, but what it's done is made us very savvy about having to keep a, a smaller crew and we're very diligent about 
our labor factor and, and, and cost factor because I know that we're, we're living off a, a city that has no tourists at the moment and only a local market and only a, a very neighborhood sort of segment now. That's, that's our business model because we've cut out the international traveler, we've cut out the destination diner, and we've cut out the hotel guests as well. Um, I, I, I can be honest right now, and I think that we're doing an excellent job at retaining and making sure that we, we look at our cost factor. Um, and as I go back to it, it is a, an advantage to have the people in the hotel because, you know, we guesstimated that if you had a hotel that's 85% full and there's 400 rooms, then you might be able to get 30 or 40 or 50 people out of that hotel on a daily basis. And then they also put them into packages and all these other different marketing segments. And, um, you know, all of that is, is no longer because until the hotel's open, it's just, it's a, it's not going to work. So, um, I do believe that it's a very positive spin. And I also, there's a, there's a few other divisions that you have to be smart about too. You know, in New York, uh, you have to have a front door. You have to make sure that people are walking into the restaurant. Um, and generally, that's because it's a very New York thing. If you go to Asia, people love, they don't mind if they go up seven flights of stairs through the hotel lobby, around the corner, they'll go eat there. <laughs> that's true. In New York City, they like to go from the street out of their car and they like to go straight through the door. So there's a lot of aspects about our business that we have to clarify and quantify and also make sure that we do so that we can be successful with within the hotel area as well. And I believe that the hotel is the hotel and the restaurant is the restaurant. You know, you brand these different products because they're different animals. And, you know, I see both sides of it because I've worked both hotel and also uh, a, lot, a lot of restaurants too. And it's a different mentality. It's not wrong. It's just different. So the translation of information and the communication, um, I feel very lucky that I can talk both languages. So I understand where the hotel people are coming from. And I also understand the restaurant people. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of restaurateurs are very stuck in their zone and, and same as on the other side. And, and that's where you're at with that. But, you know, I, I've, I've done freestanding restaurants that have been really great. I've done hotel restaurants that have been really great. And you just have to know how to, again, talk the correct language. Well, I think it'll change a lot too, obviously, if you're, you know, I think you guys will do great in capturing the, the local clientele. And then when everybody comes back and knock on wood, hopefully in spring or summer of 21, then um, it'll really pick up in a big way. How, when that happens, how will you um, balance this, the onset of um, international travelers again, as well as, um, taking care of your your loyal locals. Well, you know what's funny is that we actually have a door to the hotel and we have a door on the front. So, you know, we've always built this restaurant to be able to take on people from both sides. I've always believed in the neighborhood. You know? That's That was the one reason why, listen, I, I've I've worked in Central Park South and then I've, I've worked downtown. So I've got a little bit of experience about the city and these neighborhoods. And, and the one thing is, is building Vestry was about being a Soho-centric, very neighborhood-driven place that, you know, I, I always loved the concept of La Conda Verde, right? And the reason why is Carmelini's a talented chef, then you've got De Niro who owns hotel. You know, it become this spark of inspiration that, and it was one of those sort of pioneering restaurants that you could say, listen, you can blend the two, you can work together, and it can be a successful business model. But the one most important factor that I really loved about that restaurant was it really embraced the neighborhood. Um, it really did something and it changed that whole like 
uh, understanding that just because it's on the corner and it's in a hotel doesn't mean it can't be a quality product. And I, I've eaten there many times and I just love Tribeca as a neighborhood. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I really want to cook in Soho because I've spent so much time down here. Um, I like eating down here. It's kind of like my neighborhood. And, you know, to open up something that people can embrace as their neighbors. And there's a lot of development, some other things that are happening outside this area as well, which I'm sure will benefit the restaurant. Um, but, you know, that's the, the stem of why I wanted to grow in Soho. It's because neighborhoods do make places and people do make places. And I really care about this area. I really care about the village. And I like this. It's, it's something that's very close to my heart. It's so funny. I like didn't even think of, I don't even think of La Conda Verde as being in a hotel. So, I mean, it's, I, you know, I think of it as being like a Tribeca neighborhood restaurant, but it's not true. I I know it's in a hotel, but I just, it's like, it's smart. I say I've never thought about it like that. And it's it's a really great example of of doing it really well. So I love that. Yeah. It's funny because I've seen in the history of New York, you know, sometimes, you know, having restaurants in a hotel can be the death of them too, because, you know, it's just the way that it works. But, um, I think especially developers and, and hotel hoteliers, they're much more savvy these days. They understand that they can't always take on things that they may not be experts in. And, and a lot of the time when you have a development and then they can pay for the restaurant and then you can obviously do a joint venture or whatever the deal becomes, they're going to benefit that from a marketing perspective for the hotel, but you're actually also benefiting from it because you have a good backer and it just makes the whole um, break even point a lot easier. And there's a lot of intertwined um, marketing things that happen that also benefit both sides as well. Um, so they work very much hand in hand. And it's New York is unlike anywhere else on the planet when it comes down to this sort of stuff, because you can go to Paris and you can eat at a three Michelin star restaurant or a two or a one or even a, a brasserie um, in a hotel and they'll always be busy as well as Asia and Australia. Whereas New York, it's, it's, um, it's not always that way. You know, you have to design it very specifically and you have to be very intelligent about making sure that the general public are coming in to see you as the, the chef and the restaurant. Um, and you have to try and avoid that stigma of, of what's been in the past. It's a really smart approach. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, speaking, so you just recently opened and we like to um, – go and shout out people who are opening soon or will be opening um, or maybe recently opened at this point in the show. So any announcements you want to share with our listeners? Oh dear. You've got me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Not a requirement. You want to start with yours again? Yeah, we got some. Okay. So actually it'll be interesting. The Jax is opening today in Long Island city. So this project has been like two years in the making um, and a Tishman Spire building. And so field trip, Chef JJ is opening his second location there, and he'll be coming on later in the season. So we'll get to hear how that went. Um, the team from Kamika and Wayla are opening Lotus and Cleaver, and Taim is also opening in this space. So congrats to all of those restaurateurs. We're super excited to see it. If you got one, feel free. Or what's your favorite? You said you like to eat out here in the city and it's part of your regular routine. Where have you been vibing lately? You know, it's actually, I, I needed to have a second to think about this. But <laughs> there is a very good friend of mine um, and he just opened up Maki Kosaka and it's a hand roll place. But I, I actually frequent his sort of like sushi temple 
as well as my fiance. And I also know Miyon, she's the front of house lady. And these people have been friends of mine for a very long time and they, they reopened Kasaka and it's one of those um, places that you have a lot of sushi and it's very serious. But what he did is he realized that they've got a great space um, and it's just between, I think it's between 5th and 6th on uh, 17th, yeah, maybe 19th Street, sorry. And it's called Maki Kosaka. And it's one of those things where you have one big piece of sushi and then you get the nori and then you attach the nori to the sushi and then you have a hand roll. So I'm going to tell you, it's super affordable. It's really cute. I think we've already been there three or four times since it's opened. They've been pretty busy, which is really fantastic. And the one good thing about it is it's just delicious. Um, I've been a fan of, of Yoshi for so long now. But the one thing I, I must admit, I probably prefer what he's doing at Maki Kasaka because I can eat there on a regular basis, you know, and I, I think that's really, that speaks to what we've been talking about today. It's about accessibility and frequenting something that you love and being able to have those, you know, small experiences where you can keep going back. I really appreciated that. And I thought, you know, the flavor profiles and just the concept within its own, there's a little flower shop at the front of the store and then you go into this uh, area where there's a couple counters and then they're making the sushi in front of you. But I'm going to tell you, every time I've eaten there, it's been on point and the, the, the service is gracious. I think the room is really cool. It's very simple, which I love anyway. Um, and I can't wait to go back there, actually. I'm on the website right now. It looks great. <laughs> We're going. We're going. Sold. On the calendar. He's so <laughs> Thank you. He's such he's such a like intense guy and to see him do something so playful, it's such a pleasure. Cool. We're, we're excited. Um well thank you again, Sean, for, for sharing so much wisdom and uh we're super excited for your restaurant and Vestry is on the calendar for us as well. Um for today, we'll put a wrap-up of our uh, show on tillitnyc.com so you can catch it in our blog uh, for the podcast for opening soon. Uh, we'll also send one to your inbox, so if you're not already on our email list, then make sure that you get on it. Um, Sean, how do we find you and the restaurant on social channels? All right, so it's pretty easy. At Shergat is my IG handle, so that's at S-H-E-R-G-A-T-T, um, and then also, too, I want you to follow, everyone should follow at V-E-S-T-R-Y-N-Y-C. So that's the other IG handle for Vestry, Vestry NYC. And you know what? We were actually almost over 1,000 followers in one month, and I think that's a pretty cool thing because, as you know, every time they change an algorithm, it's always hard. <laughs> <laughs> the algorithm. Um... We, we well know. Um and we are at Till at NYC. We're also for the podcast. We're at uh, we are we are opening soon. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done a show. I forgot our uh, handle. Uh, <laughs> we are opening soon, and that does it for us. Thanks again, Sean. Um, Thanks so much. And we'll see you at the restaurant soon. I'm excited to cook for you guys. Thank you so much. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.